Welcome to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. Tonight, I'll be looking at three surprisingly uplifting horror films that I personally feel everyone should see at least once in their lives, followed by a handful of horror comedy recommendations, most of which come from the slasher community, and I think they're all fantastic. Horror comedy is a subgenre I've always appreciated, of course, but with this year we've had, it's becoming less a thing I want and more a thing I need. Before I dive into it, I do have a couple of quick points of interest I'd like to touch down on, but before I can get into that, I want to listen to my new theme song again. <laughs> I love that song so much. <laughs> That new theme, entitled Final Girl Friday, was composed, performed, and exercised by the endlessly talented Gory Rory. If you would like to hear the full version, which I highly encourage you to do because it is awesome, head over to YouTube and check out his channel, where you'll find a wealth of incredible music, most of which was inspired by many of our favorite horror films and composers. I can't thank you enough, Rory, for taking an interest in my little podcast, let alone providing it with music, so just thank you. Moving on, I have some bittersweet news in the realm of horror television. On August 27th, The CW dropped the trailer for the 15th and final season of its long-running series, Supernatural. You know, I gotta tell you, it's so true that it's just impossible to please fans because I've been saying for a long time now that Supernatural should have ended like five seasons ago, but actually seeing the very last trailer for the very last season it was hard. I was just sitting there like cradling my computer monitor like, wait, never mind. Don't go. I take it back. The season will premiere on October 8th with free next day streaming through the CW app and the series finale is set to air on November 19th after an hour-long retrospective entitled Supernatural The Long Way Home. I'm already getting way too emotional about this. I need to calm down. No need to feel like abject losers. You learned a valuable lesson here. You need me. For a little recommended reading, there's a great editorial from Louise H.C. at Bloody Disgusting entitled Pandemic Filmmaking and the Resurgence of Found Footage Horrors, which, among other things, looks at the rising popularity of pre-pandemic found footage films in quarantine and excitedly considers what our current limitations may eventually produce. In that article, Louise says, Decades ago, the rise of easily accessible consumer electronics helped to democratize filmmaking, opening the door for new creators with fresh ideas to innovate within the industry. Since the Blair Witch Project came on the scene and popularized the subgenre, found footage has basically been an extension of that democratization, a filmmaking language open to anyone and everyone willing to try their hand at storytelling. The only difference is that this language now happens to be one of our only options. I definitely encourage anyone and everyone to check that article out. If you haven't, it's a thought-provoking read. Speaking of the Blair Witch Project, some of you might remember a while back I mentioned the podcast Modern Horror Show, which I binged hard 
hard because it is fabulous. Its host, Matt, has teamed up with fellow slasher Amber for a new podcast called Gorer Assembly. It is also available on Anchor, and I love it. In their most recent episode, titled The Blair Witch Project, a podcast divided, they talk with Glory Rory, actually, about their first experiences with the film, their many thoughts on Heather, and they even read a little review I wrote, which was neat. So thanks so much, guys, for including me in that and for being generally hilarious and engaging. I cannot wait for future episodes. <laughs> All right, I think I've covered everything that piqued my interest this week. There really wasn't a whole lot in the realm of horror news, apart from a few new teaser trailers and some additional information regarding the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot, which will apparently be taking us back to the beginning. <laughs> again. So with all of that out of the way, it's time to dive into the movies. Because I'm focusing primarily on the way these movies end, two of them will undoubtedly be spoiled. So if you haven't seen 28 Days Later or The Eye, proceed with caution. However, I won't be spoiling one cut of the dead, which may seem like a weird choice, but it'll all make sense when we get to it, I hope. When I first set out to construct this episode, I figured it could go one of two ways. Either I could identify and examine the three types of endings that I feel are most commonly found in horror films, those being shocking, ambiguous, or cathartic, then from there shift to the happy or hopeful ending, or I could just talk about the pandemic. <laughs> I really didn't want to talk about the pandemic, though, because I feel... Like, it's, that's all any of us have been able to talk about for months, you know? And I wanted this to be an upbeat episode, or at the very least, an academic one, filled with joy and fun facts and all that shit. But as hard as I tried, I just kept going back to the fucking coronavirus. I watched a video recently from a YouTube channel called Philosophy Tube, and its host, Oliver, talked poignantly in that video about hope and about what having little to look forward to can do to a person. Hope is extremely important, and it's something a lot of us take for granted, I think, as we go through life. Simply looking forward to tomorrow can be the thing that gets us through the day, you know? And right now, it's getting harder to say... Okay, so today I was stuck inside. I didn't really have any contact with anyone. More people caught COVID, more people died from it. Lots of people still aren't taking it seriously. I'm still on furlough from work. I have no idea when or if I'll ever be hired back, but tomorrow will be different. Tomorrow, all the things that are making life feel like a bit of a garbage pile right now will have gone away. It's getting harder to say that because it's starting to feel less true. Tomorrow will, if the last five months are any indication, probably be more of the same. I don't know much about philosophy, really, but I do know that French philosopher Albert Camus was a fan of the notion of revolt. This idea that beneath the looming threat of inevitable death and oppression, to simply live is an act of rebellion, a heroic thing which ripples through and has a positive effect on all of us. There's a lot more to it, but that's one of the lessons I've taken away from it. Camus also famously said, in the midst of winter, I found there was within me an invincible summer, and that makes me happy. 
It says that no matter how hard the world pushes against me, within me there is something stronger, something better pushing right back. I think that's one of the reasons I so love film as a medium, why movies have always been one of my favorite things that we humans make and enjoy, perhaps especially horror. There's something needfully defiant about bringing pain suffering, fear, and death to life, and turning them into art, into something fun. And as cheesy as it sounds, every time a hero survives, I feel that. I survive right alongside them. Films like Jaws, Poltergeist, House on Haunted Hill, The People Under the Stairs, even The Happening, as atrocious as it is, these are Camus' revolt brought to life. And it's on that note that I would like to celebrate three of my personal favorite acts of rebellion. 28 Days Later, The Eye, and One Cut of the Dead. The criteria for this admittedly short list was that the films have not just happy endings, but hard-earned and unexpectedly uplifting ones. It's for this reason that I didn't include a lot of the horror comedy recommendations in this portion of the episode. I wanted the films I focused on today to feel a little bit like 2020 in that they're relentless, but with a final note that hope lives, you know, that things will get better and that our perseverance counts for something. Maybe this is all just the melodramatic dribble of someone who's been feeling the pandemic a lot more than she'd like to lately, but this is what I do when I feel lost or hopeless. I turn to art, more often than not film, to remind me that life, even when it sucks, it does have its perks and its surprises. And at the end of the day, I mean, life is actually pretty fucking cool. <laughs> The first film I want to talk about today is the one from which this entire episode was born, actually, and that is 28 Days Later, directed by Danny Boyle, released in the summer of 2003. As some of you may remember, a dear friend of mine, Josh, died back in June, and this was the last movie he and I ever watched together. We didn't see it in the theater, sadly, but we did rent it almost as soon as it was available on DVD, so... This would have been early autumn of that same year, I want to say. And my memory of watching it with him has always been among my favorites. Partly because he was just a blast to watch movies with, but also because I was so terrified by the film that I had to watch most of it while cowering behind him on the couch. Maybe this is also a testament to how desensitized I've become over the years, but not many films have scared me quite as effectively as 28 Days Later did 17 years ago. I had never seen anything like it. And it wasn't just the scare factor that set it apart. I mean, I... I don't want to go into a lot of the technical details and behind the scenes stuff today. This isn't a deep dive. I just want to focus on the stories. But suffice it to say, 28 Days Later is a masterfully crafted film that puts its characters and its audience through hell in a way that was wholly unique for the time in which it was released and in a way that still holds up today. 28 Days Later follows Jim, a former bicycle courier who wakes from a coma to discover England has been devastated by a viral outbreak. This outbreak feels very similarly to what we've seen in a number of zombie films, although the virus itself acts a bit more like severe rabies, not killing the infected, but rather turning them into white-hot balls of murderous rage. Accompanied by fellow survivors Selena, Frank, and Hannah, Jim braves myriad dangers in search of sanctuary, struggling to come to terms with the equal parts desolate and hostile nature of the world around him. Portrayed by Killian Murphy in what is arguably one of his most memorable roles, Jim is an innocent at the start of the film. He's kind, trusting, 
clueless, and vulnerable to an extreme, as beautifully illustrated by the film's opening scenes. He wanders aimlessly and confused through the seemingly abandoned streets of the city, narrowly escaping some infected at a church, and winds up in the company of Selena, played by the fabulous Naomi Harris, and fellow survivor Mark, played by Noah Huntley. We learn right away that Selena has already paid her dues in this apocalypse and been hardened by that. She essentially acts as the opposite of Jim in many ways. This is further hammered home when the three of them travel to Jim's parents' house and Mark is bitten in an infected attack, and before he can even get a sentence out in defense of himself, Selena kills him quite viciously. As a side note, when I first saw this film, I was a little disappointed by Selena's character arc, because at the time, it felt like they had taken a fierce, independent heroine and reduced her to a damsel in distress. But it has been almost two decades since my first experience with it, and I fully realize now how grim an interpretation that was. Selena may be the character who becomes more vulnerable and emotional as the story goes on, but that does not make her in any way a weak lead. It's two sides of the same coin. Jim is governed more by emotion at the start and all but incapable of kicking ass, while Selena does nothing but kick ass and feels nothing. By the climax, we see these two roles almost entirely reversed reversed, and both are essential for their survival. Now that I'm quite a bit older, and hopefully a little wiser, I've come to understand that this is a lesson both Jim and Selena needed to learn, and the order in which they learned it is inconsequential. Jim and Selena's development as individuals in this new world, as well as friends and eventual lovers, is further shaped by their interactions with Frank, played by Brendan Gleeson in just one of my absolute favorite casting choices, possibly ever. <laughs> Frank is a hard-working and resourceful man who has managed to protect himself and his teenage daughter Hannah during the first couple of weeks of the outbreak by way of extreme isolation. When Jim and Selena cross paths with him, he plays for them a radio broadcast, which seems to be military in origin, promising sanctuary. The four of them then venture out into the country in search of its source, and they bond, inevitably, along the way. We see Selena's disposition soften a bit, particularly in the presence of Hannah, while Jim is forced to kill a little infected boy and becomes plagued by nightmares. When they finally arrive at the outpost spoken of in the broadcast, it appears to be abandoned, and Frank, in his frustration, jostles a corpse, and a drop of infected blood falls down directly into his eye. The infection is extremely fast-acting, and Frank only has a few moments to explain to his daughter how much he loves her before he becomes a stranger to himself and tries to kill her. Hannah's trying to comfort him to find out what's wrong. She doesn't even really realize what's happening, and a few heart-wrenching long, painful seconds later, a small group of soldiers arrive and gun Frank down right in front of his daughter. Hannah, I love you very much. What? Keep away from me. Stay where you are. Dad? It's one of the harder cinematic deaths I think I've ever witnessed. It's, it's very hard to let Frank go. Jim, Selena, and Hannah are taken by the soldiers to an enormous and well-fortified house some distance away from this outpost, and there they meet Major Henry West and the rest of his band of merry soldiers. West is played by Christopher Eccleston, and um, another little side note, this was my first time seeing him in anything outside of Doctor Who, which made for an interesting viewing experience. West is, you know, kind of a monster, and Eccleston 
Huddleston's doctor was quite the opposite. It seems for a few moments that the broadcast they heard was right, that this is a safe haven, but things get really rapey when West explains to Jim that he promised the soldiers women to keep them from killing themselves. As Selena and Hannah fit the bill, the guys proceed to separate Jim from them and dress the girls in formal gowns for... I guess what they imagine will be a long night of unwanted procreation. There's a lot that I am tempted to go into here about the believability of the I Promise Them Women thing, but this film was written by Alex Garland, who also wrote The Beach and Ex Machina. The man loves his man is the real monster message, and I, I'm a big fan of it as well. I totally get it. I do wish in this case it had been done a little differently, but to Mr. Garland, I simply say, message received. <laughs> Driven by his love for Selena and Hannah, as well as his sense of duty to protect his family, Jim sets a captive infected free inside the house, doing a fair share of damage himself to the soldiers and ultimately rescuing the girls. We also have an incredibly sweet moment between Jim and Selena, where she had told him toward the beginning of the film that if he were infected, she would kill him in a heartbeat. And he goes through so much to rescue her, and he's covered in blood. She has no idea what he's been through when he gets to her. He could very well be infected. She she has no clue. And when he rushes at her, she realizes it's him, and she has this machete drawn above her head, and she freezes for a second. And he says that that was longer than a heartbeat. And then they kiss, and it's lovely. <laughs> the three of them escape the compound and find their own sanctuary at a small, homey-looking cottage in a remote part of the country. It's here where we get our happy ending. Jim, Selena, and Hannah appear to be living quite peacefully and working on a project which turns out to be a giant hello stitched together from linens which they spread on the ground as a plane flies overhead. The last line of the film is Selena smiling and saying, do you think he saw us this time? 28 Days Later is many things. It's wonderfully directed, beautifully shot. I cannot compliment the cinematography from Mantle enough. Jim waking up in the hospital, the piles of infected in the church, not to mention the graffiti on the wall, which reads, the end is extremely fucking nigh. Ugh, that panning shot of Jim hiding behind one of the military trucks toward the end and Killian Murphy's performance in that moment. It's just, John Murphy's score is also remarkable. In fact, I think this was the first movie I ever bought the score for. Not the soundtrack, but the score. It was the first film I ever remember seeing and really paying attention to the music that had been created for it. More than anything, though, what I think of most when I think of this film is that ending, how bright and lighthearted and fun it was, watching them race out to the cottage to get the last couple of sheets down and giggling and how happy Selena looks, how content Jim is. This is the film that killed Mark and Frank, that flung a gasping, choking, animalistic priest at poor Jim just minutes after he'd woken up to the world. This is the film that tortured chimpanzees and turned everyday Joes into rapists. This was a relentless, terrifying film. And yet it ends on this very tender note. Before I move on, I do want to say that I wish that all of you, anyone out there listening, if you hadn't, I wish you had had the pleasure of knowing my friend Josh. He was one of the funniest, most passionate, fiercely intelligent people I've ever known. He had excellent taste in both movies and music. And he was one of those people who, when you were talking to him, no matter what you were talking about, you had his rapt attention. You know what I mean? He cared about everything. I'm so glad to have experienced this film with him way back when it was brand new, to have been protected by him <laughs> while I was watching it. If anybody understood how important it is to stay positive in dark times, it was Josh.
All right, next up on the list is a film that some people might not find as uplifting as I do. I'm not really sure. I mean, I originally wanted to include The Orphanage on this list, as I personally feel the ending to that film is a happy one, but apparently most people feel pretty bummed out by it or whatever, so it's possible that happy endings are subjective. However, I have always felt especially uplifted by this one, so I'm including it, and that is The Eye, written and directed by the Pang Brothers, also released in the United States in June of 2003. This is, of course, the original Hong Kong single Singaporean version of the film I'm talking about here, not the American remake from 2008. Much like 28 Days Later, I was genuinely creeped out by The Eye the first time I saw it. Maybe I was just really jumpy in 2003, I don't know. The Eye features some truly eerie visuals nestled into a kind of dreamscape that often leaves me with a goosebumpy feeling. Instead of a kind of rabies virus ravaging the world, however, The Eye is a somber ghost story told across Asia from the perspective of a blind woman named Mun. This is a difficult film to describe accurately in a linear way, because as I mentioned, it's quite dreamlike, and a large portion of the story is naturally told through Mun's eyes, which are ever adjusting to the world. It's one of the things I love most about the film, actually. It takes Mun a long time to see things clearly, both figuratively and actually, and the audience is right there with her through that process. In terms of scares, the film plays more heavily on intimations rather than absolutes, which I've personally always found to be more frightening. It also features spectacular cinematography and direction, as well as a beautifully understated performance from from Angelica Lee in the lead. It's also kind of hard to talk about it in a peppy way, <laughs> because it's a very melancholic film, as ridiculous as that sounds, given the title of this episode. But it's, you know, it's not always just about having a wild amount of fun. I think sometimes joy can come from a more solemn place, and that's kind of the case with this film. So we're going to step away from the tone with which I usually talk about movies, and you're going to hear what a sentimental ass I can be sometimes. <laughs> In the eye, Mun receives a cornea transplant from an anonymous donor that successfully restores the sight she lost at the age of five. Now able to see the world again, she realizes that the world looks a little scarier than she'd remembered, namely because she is seeing the dead as well as the living everywhere she goes. From the moment her bandages come off, Mun is confused, uncertain, and haunted, particularly by strange shadowy figures at the hospital. At the same time though, you know, I mean, she's regaining her sight, so she's excited. There's this great scene where she looks at herself in the mirror for the first time, and she's just awestruck by being able to see her own reflection. Even when she's terrified by the spirits she encounters, as well she should be, there's an undercurrent of curiosity. She also befriends a young girl named Ying Ying, played by the adorable Yu Lai So during her recovery at the hospital, who takes a picture of the two of them together with this cute little camera, which becomes important later, and the two remain friends after Mun is sent home. Back out in the world, Mun enrolls in calligraphy classes and continues to try to enjoy her new life, but as her vision improves, the shadows she's been seeing become fully formed figures of the dead. Many of them are surprisingly talkative, and they are freaking her out. When she starts asking questions, particularly to her physician, it lands her in the care of a sympathetic and admittedly dashing psychotherapist named Dr. Wa, played by Lawrence Chow. While he doesn't necessarily believe she's seeing ghosts, his heart does go out to her, and the two 
have a nice rapport. Then two things happen. Firstly, one of the ghosts Mun sees, uh, a little boy who's looking for his report card, turns out to have been a tenant at her apartment building who committed suicide, and his parents hire a kind of exorcist to lay his spirit to rest. And then secondly, Mun, who is also a violinist, is asked to step down from the blind orchestra that she was a member of because her operation was successful and she's no longer blind. This breaks Mun's heart, and coupled with this newfound ability to encounter some pretty creepy spirits, she becomes exhausted, retreating to her room, drawing the curtains, and closing her eyes. She just stops engaging for what feels like many days. Eventually, Mun's grandmother becomes concerned and calls Dr. Wah, who goes to Mun and pleads with her to keep going. In response, she leaves her room to crash the orchestra's rehearsal, collapsing on stage during a very angry violin solo, which is woven together with scenes of the aforementioned exorcism. After her breakdown, Mun is taken back to the hospital, where she has a disorienting conversation with Yingying, who is then led away by a mysterious figure. The next day, Mun learns that Yingying died during a brain operation. Dr. Wa gives Mun a copy of the photograph Yingying took earlier in the film, and it's at this point Mun realizes that she has been seeing a completely different woman when she looks in the mirror. Either because of his affection for her or because her reaction seems genuine, Dr. Wa is finally on board, and the two of them begin to solve the mystery of her cornea donor. One of the other things that I really like about this film is that once Mun realizes that her reflection in the mirror is not her, and Dr. Waugh believes her enough, the tone of the film shifts almost entirely. It is still a horror film, and it still feels like a horror film, but it also just sort of becomes a kind of heady mystery. It takes some digging, but they eventually learn that Mun's corneas belonged to a woman named Ling in Thailand. So they travel there and speak with her mother, who is in pretty rough shape. It turns out Ling did have the power to see the dead, as well as predict death, but was repeatedly harassed and ostracized for trying to use this ability to help people, which, coupled with the difficult nature of the ability itself, ultimately led to her suicide. Mun spends the night in Ling's old bedroom, wanting to feel closer to her, to understand her, and has an intense encounter with Ling's spirit, which, after some doing, she believes she's put to rest. During their trip back from Bangkok, Dr. Wah and Mun are held up by a traffic accident, a large fuel truck is overturned on the road, which triggers a vision of an explosion in Mun's mind. Like Ling before her, she screams for the people in the road to get out of their cars and run away, but no one is taking her seriously. Seconds later, the truck does explode, and Dr. Wah saves Mun's life, but not before shards of debris land directly in her eyes, blinding her again. This probably seems like a horrific way to close out this story, but it, it turns out to be quite the opposite. The film ends with Mun walking through a crowd with her cane and sunglasses, saying, Aside from pain, I saw beauty. I no longer question why I am blind, for I have seen some of the most beautiful things in this world, things I'll never forget. As this narration ends, Mun walks into Dr. Wah, who is standing there waiting for her, and they both smile. What makes the ending of this film, the entirety of the film really, especially uplifting for me, is firstly, its reinforcement of the necessity of balance. How it dances back and forth between the light and the darkness in the world in a way that showcases the beauty and mystery inherent to both, blending them together to form mesmerizing images. 
I also love the parallels that exist between Mun and Ling, which we see a lot of in the third act, that though they lived in totally different places and had completely different lives, they experienced a lot of the same suffering and carried with them the same gift. While Ling died believing it to be a burden, Mun lived and chose to view the time she had with it as a blessing. I mean, yeah, it scared her, but it also helped her make peace with herself. It showed her new things, took her to new places, and brought someone new into her life, someone who makes her happy. Okay, lastly on this list is a film I have no idea how to talk about. I honestly don't know why I was so determined to include it here, as it is just so difficult to describe without spoiling. And unlike the previous two films, I really, really don't want to spoil this one. I watched this for the first time quite recently and had some of the most fun I have had all year. So if I can spread that around, I would like to do that as much as humanly possible. One Cut of the Dead, written and directed by Shinichiro Ueda, I hope, released in 2017. Now, this film is a little different from the two I've talked about already also in that it is a comedy. Was that a sentence? But it does fit the criteria I mentioned in one very specific way. I did not suspect to feel so outrageously good about life when this movie was over. I had no clue what this story was going to do to my heart going into it. And so for that, I have no choice but to classify it as an unexpectedly uplifting horror film. One Cut of the Dead, also called Don't Stop the Camera, is a story within a story within a story. It follows Higurashi, a self-proclaimed fast, cheap, and average filmmaker recruited to direct a live, low-budget zombie film about a group of people making a low-budget zombie film who are then beset upon by actual zombies. I already feel like I'm spoiling the film by explaining that much. <laughs> Higurashi is portrayed by Takayuki Hamatsu, who is the human equivalent of a hug. I fell instantly in love with this man, and that love only grew stronger and more layered as the story progressed, along with his cast and crew, all of whom are wildly entertaining in their own unique ways. Higurashi masterfully navigates the myriad obstacles that present themselves behind the scenes for any filmmaker, cheap, average, or otherwise. Just when I thought I understood one cut of the dead, it flipped the script, and just when I thought I couldn't possibly enjoy it any more than I already did, it surprised me. It is a bloody, gory, at times quite trashy zombie movie with a huge beating heart at its center. In David Ehrlich's review of One Cut of the Dead on IndieWire, he referred to the film as the best zombie comedy since Shaun of the Dead, and goes on to say, Drunk on its own DIY energy and deeply in love with everything it's doing, One Cut of the Dead is a euphoric ode to the chaos and compromise of genre filmmaking. It's the kind of movie that makes you want to pick up a camera, call some friends, and shoot the end of the world on your own terms. I really wish I could say more about this movie. I want to say so much more, but I can't. Just promise me you'll watch it. And you will not stop watching it, no matter what happens during the first 30 minutes. You will stick with it, because it is worth it. You will be rewarded for your time. So that's it. Those are three of my favorite uplifting and optimistic horror films that leave me with a sense of hope for the future, that have helped me revolt 
during this challenging year. If your list would contain different titles, or if you have any thoughts at all on the films I've talked about, I love hearing from you guys. There are a couple of ways to get a hold of me. First, you can look me up on Slasher. My username is Final Girl Friday, or you can shoot me an email at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com. If you're feeling especially social, you can check the description of this podcast on anchor.fm, where you'll find an open invitation to the Final Girl Friday Discord. Before I wrap things up, I reached out to my fellow horror fanatics on Slasher and asked them to recommend to me some of their favorite feel-good horror movies. Since I've decided to do things in threes this week, apparently I've chosen three of those suggestions that I have also seen and loved to further encourage happier horror viewing for anyone out there listening. The first recommendation comes from Haddonfield Mike, everyone's favorite trick-or-treater, and that is Happy Death Day. When I first saw this film, I didn't have the highest hopes going into it for some reason. Reason, but I'm glad because I was beyond pleasantly surprised. Happy Death Day puts a fun, slashery spin on the classic tale of Groundhog Day with college mean girl Tree, played expertly by Jessica Roth, forced to relive her birthday over and over, which ends each time with her death, always different and often wildly inventive. In true Phil Connors fashion, Tree undergoes a massive personality overhaul as a result of this experience, and the film packs a heartwarming punch, taking the wholesome message of its muse and combining it beautifully with the tricks and tropes of teen horror. Will you please stop staring at me like I took a dump on your mom's head? I'm sorry. Next up is a film recommended by Thorn King and Mal Simmons Art, and that is Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. So Tucker and Dale vs. Evil is possibly the best horror comedy I have ever seen. I mean, I'd have to sit down and really think about it to be sure, but it's definitely in my top five. Or let's say top three, to keep with the theme. It stars Tyler Labine and Alan Tudyk as kind-hearted hillbilly best friends who trek out to the woods to fix up their new summer home, only to be terrorized by a group of vacationing college students who, having seen too many horror movies, wrongly assume the boys are backwoods murderers. It's like if you took Texas Chainsaw and Three's Company and threw them into a wood chipper and then mushed those pieces together into a teddy bear. <laughs> Please, don't, 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 don't cry. No, please don't cry. Oh, it's the pancakes. You hate pancakes. I'm all gonna make you something else. Lastly, we have a recommendation from Boomstick Butcher and Gory Rory, and that is Buffy the Vampire Slayer from 1992. Potentially fun fact, I actually recorded a deep dive of the Buffy movie way back at the beginning of last summer that was lost when I changed computers, and I've just never been able to bring myself to re-record it. I think it might have been for the best, honestly, as it's kind of a movie best suited for a group discussion, so maybe someday I'll revisit it with guests. Featuring hilarious performances from Christy Swanson, Luke Perry, Paul Rubens, and a ridiculously dressed Rudger Hauer, Buffy the Vampire Slayer follows Valley Girl Buffy as she discovers and struggles to understand her birthright as the bane of the undead. It's a film I watched religiously when I was 10 years old, and although I'm now a much bigger fan of Joss Whedon's original vision by way of the TV series, the movie continues to make me stupidly happy every time I see it. You ruined my new jacket. Kill him a lot.
honorable mentions from the slashers include Tremors, They Live, Any and All of the Evil Dead movies, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, Idle Hands, Night of the Demons, and something called Murder Party, which I've never seen. It is definitely getting bumped to the top of my watch list. Thanks so much, all of you, for taking time out of your day to share some of your favorites with me. I love talking about movies with you guys. It is the highlight of my day every day. Which reminds me to anyone out there who may be listening to this who is not familiar with the Slasher app, I recommend checking it out, downloading it, becoming a part of that community. I'm not going to ramble on about it again (laughs) because I already did that. If you would like to hear me ramble about Slasher, just go back to my happening episode because that's what I did for like the first 15 minutes. I hope everyone out there is having a good summer. To those of you who've been with me for a while, I sincerely appreciate your patience, as I know I have been less than present on social media and the Patreon lately, and my recording schedule is just not even a schedule anymore, but I am still here. And I'm still writing about films almost every day, which will hopefully be reflected um, on the Patreon and and the website very soon. The Patreon just... uh, It just... It hasn't been a priority for me for the last couple of months. You know, there are only a few of us left over there, which is what I would prefer as I would much rather everyone save their money for more important things. And because of this, I've decided that the topic polls and audio commentary tracks, which are still coming, will be available to the public through Patreon for the time being. I just feel really, really weird about asking people to pay for entertainment right now. And I hope you guys who are still pledging over there will understand. Thank you so much for continuing to support this project. Susie Q and Eli. I know it's been a rough year and I just really appreciate that you've stuck around. All right, that's all I've got for now, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane, keep it positive, and above all else, creep it real. (laughs) 